everyone. Welcome to Dig Deep. So last week we left off with Joseph being thrown into prison. And our chapter this week, Genesis 40, starts off with these words, sometime later. Sometime later. I would not like that phrase if I were Joseph. I don't think I would like that description of time. I imagine if I were wrongfully accused of a crime and thrown in prison, I would be writing tally marks on the wall of my cell, very aware of my lack of freedom and isolation from the outside world. But we're just told some time later. I told you all a couple weeks ago that we braved the Disney experience this year, and we all know that a staple of the Disney experience is a whole lot of waiting. Waiting, 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 waiting for rides, waiting for parades, waiting for food. And what I found impressive was that when it came to the rides, Disney provides pretty darn accurate wait times, both at the end of the line on a sign and on the app. And so at any given moment, you can open up the app and see the wait times for all of the rides in all of the different parks. So you can know, I can either wait 60 minutes to ride the carousel or 210 minutes to ride Space Mountain. And yes, those wait times are pretty darn close and they are ridiculous, but at least they're accurate. I wonder how it would go over if Disney decided instead to, on the app, when you opened it up, for each of the rides, they just gave you more of an estimate. Like... Sometime later, you'll get on this ride. Or, hmm, you know what? This one's going to be a while. Or, you're probably going to want to get a sandwich before you get in line for this ride. See, most of us don't like waiting. I do not like waiting. But at least there's some consolation in knowing how long you're going to be waiting if you do have to wait. One of our days in the park, my mom very sweetly volunteered to stand in line for our family at the brand new Slinky Dog Dash ride in Toy Story Land. And she waited in line while we took the kids to meet some of the Toy Story characters. Now, over an hour of waiting passed, and they had to shut down the ride. And my mom said it was complete pandemonium. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, people were sobbing. Even some of the kids were upset. She said, it's true. These grown human adults were crying actual tears because they could not get on the Slinky Dog Dash Ride. People were angry. They were demanding to be compensated for their time somehow because we don't like waiting, and we definitely don't like waiting when we don't know when the end is coming. In this week's passage, Joseph does a lot of waiting. He's waiting, and there's no fast pass to the front of the line. He's waiting with no end in sight in a situation that, as we read last week, just went from bad to worse. We saw last week that Joseph experienced yet another horrible betrayal in his life. He's falsely accused of a sex crime, and the trust that he had built over time completely vanished in a moment, and he loses everything he had, his position, his relationships, whatever comfort he had in Potiphar's house, it's gone. He's thrown into prison. Stacia on our teaching team pointed this out to me. I think it's really cool. In Genesis 39, the word that is used is prison for where Joseph is thrown, but in chapter 41, a different word is used, and it's a word that's translated dungeon. But that original Hebrew word that's used there for dungeon is the word bore, which is the same root word that's used for the pit that Joseph is thrown into when his brothers throw him into the cistern. This is a pit. Joseph is literally thrown into a dungeon, a pit in the ground. 
And his situation, that was already pretty horrible, went from bad to worse. And that's the funny thing. Maybe it's not a funny thing, but it's, it's an odd thing about the pit. Just when you thought it couldn't get any deeper or darker, and a lot of you have experienced this. I know I've experienced this. You think, what else could possibly go wrong? This couldn't possibly get any worse. But then you know what? Somehow it does. It gets worse and it feels like you're being kicked while you're down. It can be so disheartening that you don't even see the point in trying to get back up on your feet again and keep moving. Joseph's freedom was taken from him, and he was sold into a life of slavery. And I don't know that he could have imagined that his freedom could have been taken from him even further. He goes from being a slave to being a slave-slash-prisoner in a dungeon. And here's what's truly amazing about Joseph's story. Even as his pit grows deeper and darker, he somehow continues to thrive. And we saw last week, Marja did a great job of walking us through the truth that a huge part of why Joseph is thriving in the pit is because the Lord God was with him. Just to recap from Genesis 39 at the end, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord God was with him. He gave him success. Now, if I were Joseph, I might be tempted to think, I am grateful that you are here with me, God. But why are we here exactly? Or maybe I would say, God, I can sense that you're giving me success in my work, but my job is managing a prison. But I'm a prisoner myself. I'm also a slave. I have all the responsibility. I do all the work, but I don't get any of the title. I don't enjoy any freedom. I don't get a paycheck. I'm far from my home in a dungeon. Why me, God? Why here? And that's where we pick up in Genesis 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody, again it says, for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected, so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So in these verses, I believe we see a key component to Joseph's ability to thrive even in the midst of the pit. I think if Joseph were here today, the advice that he would give us is if you're in a pit, go serve somebody. Go serve somebody. What we see again and again in these verses is that Joseph is leveraging his gifts for the benefit of others. He's daily using his gifts of administration and leadership to manage everything in the prison. I mean, he's basically doing the warden's job for him, again, without any of the title or the credit or the freedom that comes with it. 
He's also serving his fellow prisoners. It says he attends to them. He's serving them, meeting their basic needs. But beyond that, he seems to actually care about them. His eyes are open and his heart is soft, so he asks what's bothering them when he sees that they look sad. Joseph, again and again, is serving the people around him. And he's doing it faithfully. He's doing it with skill, with humility, and with compassion. And then Joseph's given a very unique opportunity to serve these fellow prisoners by interpreting their dreams for them. So the chief cupbearer says, here's the dream I had. I saw a vine, and it had three vines coming off of it, and it had clusters of grapes, and I had Pharaoh's cups in my, cup in my hand, and I squeezed the grapes into it, and I gave the cup to Pharaoh. And Joseph said, this is what it means. In three days, you're going to be restored to your original position, and you're going to be Pharaoh's cupbearer again. Then the baker tells him his dream, and he said, well, in my dream, I had three baskets of bread on my head, and I had all of these baked goods in those baskets for Pharaoh, but birds came along, and they started eating the breads and the pastries out of these baskets. And Joseph said, well, this is what your dream means. The three baskets are three days, but in those three days, Pharaoh is going to decide to kill you and chop off your head and impale you, and the birds will eat your flesh. Two very different, different dreams, two very different outcomes, and both came to fruition, just as Joseph said, in three days. And we read in verse 20, Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials, he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. And I wonder how this felt for Joseph. We know that Joseph has had prophetic dreams himself. This is the part of the story where we learn that he also is able to interpret dreams but he just interpreted some dreams for fellow prisoners that came to fruition in three days. Three days. That was all they had to wait for their dreams to come to pass. And I imagine Joseph thought often about the dreams that he had back in Canaan and wondered, when are those going to come about? This isn't it, I don't think. Me being in charge of the other prisoners in prison, I don't get the sense that that is what you meant, God. When is this going to come to pass? When are my dreams going to be fulfilled? See, being in a pit, I think when we think back to our timelines in our lives that we wrote a few weeks ago, it often feels like a physical dip in the timeline of our lives. And in our hearts, I think we can fall into the trap of when we're in the midst of the pit, either longing desperately for the past. If we could just go back to before everything went wrong, before we fell into the pit, then life could be good again if we could only go back in time. Or we dwell on the future and we think, okay, this is where I am right now, but if I can just get out of this, if I can just get to the other side, then life will be good again. And the problem is when we dwell too much on the past or too much on the future, we can grow bitter when it comes to our present circumstances. And Joseph, we see, cares about his future. He says in verse 14 to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. 
See, Joseph does hope for the future. He hopes to get out of prison one day, and he's taking strategic steps toward that goal, including asking for a favor from someone who might have the clout to get him out of his situation. And I imagine Joseph felt really hopeful, maybe for the first time in a long time, that his reality was about to change, that the future might actually be better. He says, remember me, show me kindness, get me out of here. But in verse 23... We read that Joseph gets a real kick in the shins. This really bothers me. Poor Joseph. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And if I were Joseph at this point in the story, I would be so tempted to give up, to grow bitter, to be tired of longing for the past, of hoping for the future. I'd be sick of it. And chapter 41 begins with the words, when two full years had passed. Two more years. Two more years of managing a prison. Still a prisoner himself. Still a slave. Still carrying all the responsibility and doing all of the work, but with no title, no freedom, no paycheck, far from home, in a dungeon. Forgotten. Overlooked. Betrayed again. Ignored. Underappreciated. And some of you, I think, are living this right now. You are in a season of saying, why are we here, God? How long is this going to take? Some of you are wondering if you'll ever get married. Some of you are wondering if the marriage you're in will ever get better. Some of you are wondering if you'll ever get pregnant, if that wound will ever heal, if that prayer will ever be answered, if you'll ever get that promotion, if you'll ever be given the opportunity that you long for. In some of you, God has placed gifts and abilities inside of you that you feel like you're bottling up molten lava and like you're going to erupt if you don't have an outlet to use these gifts soon. And you're wondering when, God, when? Why are we here? How long is this going to take? And I think Joseph gets it. I think he's been there. He has remarkable gifts. He's been faithfully serving He's living with integrity. As Marja said, Joseph is a 10. But he's a 10 who's living out his days in a dungeon as a prisoner slash slave. It's been years, years since Joseph's dreams back in Canaan. And just when he thought he found a way out, he's forgotten again. And somehow, somehow, He doesn't grow bitter. He doesn't dwell on the past. He doesn't overly dwell on the future. He looks at his present circumstances, and he serves people around him. I believe that when we're in the pit, one of the best ways to find hope and to not grow bitter is to serve someone else is to leverage our gifts for the benefit of other people. I like the way author Clay Scroggins uh, talks about this in his book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He challenges his readers who might find themselves in a season of waiting. He challenges them to reject passivity. He says that in his 20s, he spent a lot of time in a lot of different internships, and he started to see a trend emerge that in every church and in every organization or even every home, there's a closet 
one closet. And when you don't know what to do with something, you just throw it in that closet. It's the catch-all closet. Every workplace, every organization, every home has one. And so there's a day that comes around every year, and he says it's usually right around when the interns start working that that closet needs to be cleaned out. And he often was given the task to clean out this closet. And here's what he says in the book. I believe a natural way to reject passivity is to focus on that closet. Choose a closet to clean. Find something that no one else wants to do and just handle it. Find that thing that is always brought up in meetings but no one ever does anything about and go find a solution for it or choose to own it in a way that a great leader would. And Joseph's closet is the day-to-day -day management of a dungeon, of a dungeon. And you know what? He's crushing it. He's absolutely crushing it. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I fall into this tendency, I don't know if this happens to you, where I picture like the little felt board guys from when I was a kid, and they're all like clean shaven and like relatively nicely dressed, and it can be too easy for me to look at this with too much distance and not really, really think about what it must have been like in the day-to-day -day for Joseph in this prison. This is a bleak, bleak situation. This is a dungeon that came with all the sights and sounds and smells that would have lined up with the lack of human rights at the time, the sanitation of the time, the lack of plumbing at the time. This is not a great situation. And I think that's why Joseph pleads with the cupbearer, remember me when you get out of here and get me out of here. But then he waits, but he doesn't wait passively. He chooses to reject passivity and serve those around him. So, if you are in a season of waiting this morning, I want to encourage you to continue to take steps toward a more desirable future. I think that's good. I think it's okay. But continue to leverage your gifts for the benefits of others in the midst of your present circumstances. What is your closet? What is the thing in your life that maybe it doesn't look like you wanted it to look, but who is it that God has placed right in front of you and he's given you the perfect gifts to meet their needs, to serve them, to make their lives better. What is your closet? Identify what it is and then go crush it. But I have to warn you, it will probably look different than what you imagined it would look like. I'm confident that Joseph never imagined he'd be using his gifts in this way, in this place. But he does. He rejects passivity and leverages his gifts to serve others. Viktor Frankl um, was an Austrian neurologist and psychologist who founded what he called the field of logotherapy. Logotherapy comes from the two Greek words for meaning and healing, or as he would say, healing through meaning. And he also happened to know a lot about life in the pit. Because in 1942, Frankel was deported to a Nazi concentration camp along with his wife, his parents, and other family members. He spent time in four concentration camps, including Auschwitz from 1942 to 1945, and he was the only member of his family to survive. 
1945, he returned to Vienna and published a book on his theories titled Man's Search for Meaning. And it has now been published in over 24 languages. His theories of logotherapy include many facets, but you want to know what one of the central pillars of his teaching is? Serve somebody. He would say to his fellow inmates in the concentration camp and to his patients that he treated for years after the war, identify a project that you can work on that if you didn't work on it, somebody else would suffer. Find a reason to wake up in the morning to make someone else's life better. What is the definitive project that is important for you to get up in the morning, again, for the benefit of other people? After the war, when he was back in Vienna, he worked for a hospital that had a terrible suicide problem, and he worked using logotherapy with his patients, and he brought the hospital's suicide rate down to zero, zero suicides after that. And a part of that therapy is to identify a project that you can work on that if you didn't work on it, somebody else would suffer. Serve somebody. Frankel said this, a man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw his life away. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. See, I believe for every one of us in this room, there are going to be seasons of waiting. There's going to be seasons of asking God, why are we here? And when are we going to get there? How much longer, Lord? But I also believe that he's given us the tools that we need to thrive, even in the midst of our present circumstances, even in the midst of the pit. First, because he's with us. And we have in Christ that same promise that never will he leave us, never will he forsake us. And along with that promise comes the command to go and serve others, to go into the world, to use the gifts that he's placed inside of you right here and now to serve somebody else. And so in our discussion time today, I want to give you three practical questions to talk through as you try to identify where it is that God is calling you to leverage your gifts for the benefit of others. The first question is this, whose life can I make better? Whose life can I make better? Second question, what gifts do I have to offer? Get creative here. Don't go to your number one or two go-tos that you've always known are part of your personality. What gifts do you have to offer to the people around you to make their lives better? And then third, where will I serve? Where will I serve? Who will I serve? What gifts do I have to offer? Where will I serve? Who, what, where? The when is already answered for you. Today. Today. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today, even in the midst of your present circumstances. And I believe that when we do this, when we remember that God is with us and that he's given us gifts that he wants to, us to leverage for the benefit of others, giving ourselves away, just as Viktor Frankl found in his research, gives us life. 
It allows us to thrive even in the midst of the pit. So let's pray together. God, waiting is hard. And I don't like it. We don't like it. And some of us this morning are in a season of waiting. I pray, God, that you would show us who you have placed right in front of us, whose life we can make better. Show us the gifts that we have to offer that we can leverage for the benefits of others and lead us to a place where we can serve in practical, tangible ways today, both for the benefit of others, for our good, and most importantly, for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.